G'day. Yep, it's that time again. Time for more cinema. Yes, welcome back, Yuganite Cinema Yugan. Thank you for listening to us on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This week, Ken's Classics is back, and we have for you remastered. For your listening pleasure, Philip Noyce, ladies and gentlemen, the legend. I have to send out a big thank you to my friend Nick Clement for helping to set this up. So now, for your listening pleasure, we have the director of Newsfront, Heatwave, Dead Calm, Blind Fury, The Hitchhiker, Patriot Games, Sliver, Clear and Present Danger, The Saint. The Bone Collector, Rabbit Proof Fence, The Quiet American, Salt, and of course, more recently, The Giver, and Fast Charlie, starring Pierce Brosnan. He's the one, the only, Philip Noyce. Let's get this party started with a bang. Great to be here, Jeff. That's great. Okay, so um, diving straight in, I have watched uh, many times because I have a a tape of it, an old interview you did with uh, Peter Thompson. It was part of a masterclass series that you did at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And in which you, you know, you talked about your background and, and, and how a great highlight was going to the tent shows and whatever else. And you, you said in that interview, you compared, you know, w- what eventually would, you would do going off and becoming a filmmaker, going off like joining the circus. Do you still feel that that's, what becoming a filmmaker is kind of like? Well, it was for me, certainly. You know, part of joining the circus is uh, moving away from home and make films, that's what you've got to do, <laughs> constantly in another place. Yeah. Particularly here in America where I'm making films now. Um, I live in Los Angeles, which is the place where all the deals are done, where all the scripts are written and there all the post-production takes place. But because of runaway production and the lack of of incentives to film in California and particularly in Los Angeles, most of the shooting takes place somewhere else where the local government or state government has provided an incentive to film producers to come and film in their states or cities. Um, So inevitably, you find yourself that the circus has traveled on and you find yourself in Atlanta, Louisiana, Chicago, New York, Toronto, to name just a few. Right. And finding. So yes, yeah. uh, the circus uh, always moves on after a couple of nights and that's what I've been doing <laughs> to of my life. Too right. And doing it well. I mean, you've been in Hollywood for... A long time now. You, I believe, I believe you moved out there with with your family in in the early nineties, nineteen ninety one. Having watched the the business changed over the years, you know, how do you how do you see the landscape for for filmmakers today as opposed to when you first got over there? Well, uh, I came here in ninety one to, to do um, Patriot Games, but I did leave in two thousand and been back to Australia for 10 years. So we're 
if you have 18 years here in America and 15 in Australia. But, you know, filmmaking nowadays includes television in a big way. So in one sense, there's never been so much opportunity worldwide. The big change is the streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, to have ever-increasing numbers of subscribers and therefore ever-increasing amounts of money to invest in production. And a subscriber base that is just so hungry for content. Added to this streaming factor and the explosion of outlet is the fact that every single network cable or TV network in the world has discovered that original drama pays. That people want original drama, whether it's on National Geographic that used to screen just documentaries, whether it's on or whether it's on American movie classics that used to screen just American movie classics. They're all making original dramas. So in that sense, there's never been so much opportunity. Right. But if you're talking about filmmaking as making movies for the cinema, well, there's never been such a lack of opportunity. And the reason for that is because the studios now, by and large, are just making big tentpole films. And those tentpole films seem to have been taken over by the miraculous superheroes. Um, (laughs) So, you know, if you're not making a $100 million-plus movie for the studio system, you're usually not making a movie at all, or you're making a movie to be streamed by Netflix or one of the other streaming services. Right. The studio's no longer really investing in... There's nearly as many films as they used to, and they've cut out that mid-range film. Right, right. You know, if you want a good story, don't go, don't go to the cinema anymore. Right. <laughs> Stay at home and stream, or or watch uh, one of your cable, or even uh, feed away a broadcast station. Right. Yeah. That's where the great writing was. Yeah. The, the cinema's a toss-up yeah. between Marvel and Star Wars, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, never been so much opportunity on the one hand, but not to make cinema uh, screen films, not to make movies. Right. But right. that's going to keep changing, and who knows in 10 years' time, you know, what what, a, what that opportunity will evolve into. Right. We know it's going to change. And, but it's not showing any signs of abating. In other words, you know, there's more directors and actors and writers working in this town, in Hollywood, than that ever have been. Right, yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of like the old, the old chestnut where they, you know, talk about every waitress is an actress and every cab driver is a screenwriter and so on and so forth. Well, no, that's true. Yeah. Except every, uh, Uber driver in Hollywood. Is a future billionaire. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it's tough to get around. But, Phil, you were part of, you know, an Aussie uh, ascension around the time that you you went over with the likes of, of, you know, Dr. George Miller and 
Peter Weir, Bruce Beresford, all of you guys seem to go over. I mean, after the after the initial sort of renaissance and, and you made kind of like your your first films and you started to get the call to to go over there, you know, do you think it was at that time, you know, Hollywood looking for for new blood, new voices? Well, Hollywood Hollywood's looking for new blood all the time, every morning. Right. The producers and studios wake up wanting to find that new blood. The funny thing is that lately, last year, they found that they didn't need to go to Australia, New Zealand, Germany, UK, Finland, or wherever they've been looking, that uh, the new blood was right there. Right. It was called women. It was called women, and it was called African-American. But there had been so much talent that was sitting on the doorstep, and they hadn't realized it right. because of certain truisms like women can't direct or women can't direct action or black Americans don't know how to make movies that appeal to a general audience. Right. So they've woken up that that some of the best filmmakers are sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. But since well, the turn of the 20th century, Hollywood has been, in the American film industry, has been reaching out across the world to find new talent. It was Germany in the, in the, in the thirties, you know. It was Brits in the fifties and sixties. Well, actually all the time. Um, mm. uh, and, but starting in the seventies, late seventies and, and reaching a peak in the nineties, it was the South Pacific people, the Australians and the New Zealanders who had something to offer. What did they, have, what did we have to offer? Well, just a different way of looking at the world. Yeah. You know, if an uh, Australian director says action, the actor's going to act differently than if a Norwegian or a Brit or a French director says action. It just comes out different. And it so happened that we were the flavor of the month. Talked considerably, I must say, by one guy, Paul Hogan, who by mesmerizing a, an outback animal with his fingers and looking into its eyes, convinced the world that Australia had some sort of magic. Right. Uh, not sure we did, but what we did have was South Pacific sunglasses. <laughs> the world differently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, difference, seeing something differently is what we pay for. Yeah. It's what we not. You know, we pay for a new vision. Right. And for a while there, we had it. <laughs> and it still gets us kind of when we ought to have, you know, we still start out with the, an advantage. The secret that we, we come from a different culture. A culture that's different because of the differences in history and because of the social differences, different way of thinking about the world. But we also come in this, uh, you know, way of well-schooled, indoctrinated by American culture, as much as anyone else in the world outside America, where we've been indoctrinated into you know, American movies, American television, know all the cultural, our cultural heroes or our cultural heroes. So it's an easy match. We come here 
He has to know more about American than Americans. <laughs> and what I've heard from some American actors that I've interviewed is that we do Americans better than Americans in some cases. You do what? We do we do Americans, like, you know, the American accent better than Americans in some cases. Going up in the minority culture, um, you know, with so many little companies and and hunting schools all around the country, all those kids are learning to speak the regional American, regional British accent. They have to in order to play the classic. Um, at, at uh, school or, you know, in their professional life. Right. They've got to play Southern American. I mean, American South have got to play Welsh, Scottish, Irish, you know, London English, and so on. Yeah. Um, so, where the Americans can get through life <laughs> just speaking with an American accent. Right. Don't worry about anyone else in the world. So, yeah, in that sense, I think, you know, when I talk to America with strong American accent, and so, sorry, strong Australian accent, but they had a strong American accent stored away in the back of their tongues as well. Yeah. Speaking of actors, you've you've directed some of the big ones, Jeff Bridges, Denzel Washington, Harrison Ford, Val Kilmer. You've also directed, you know, what are classified as non-actors and first-time actors. When you when you do when when you when you're doing this, you're directing. Does your directing style change, regardless of of an actor's, you know, credentials, you know, how much experience they are, or is it, or you just remain relatively congenial throughout? Well, you've got to remain congenial no matter what you make in a movie. Uh, but every actor is different, whether they're experienced or not. But obviously, you want to direct an honor the way you would direct an actor. My directing style is modeled on, on the idea that the less you say, the better. You know, different people have different, different uh, theories about how to direct actors. My theory is you don't direct them so much as not with them towards something. And that most of your direction comes before you ever get onto a set. It's by first of all casting the right actor for the part, number one. It was hard to play someone which is completely unsuited for. So, you know, um, that's the best situation. And secondly, you know, it's really important before you get on the set that the actor knows back to front that they go back to client. Whether Based on reality, well, it is every part based on some sort of reality. You know, just in the freedom of the performance of that. But you have to agree, you know, you know, the stable particular person and what distinguishes that character. So that all happens beforehand. Now, you know, if you're directing, say, like a, a kid's like a giving rabbit free fence, well, there, Again, the casting is important because <laughs> three different young Aboriginal, I mean, Indigenous uh, kids that had distinct and distinctly different personalities, and then not encouraging them to act, but in fact encouraging them just to be themselves. But when you get on the set, 
not that there's any lady that could like you, but nevertheless, you know, those loving fanatics like you always ask about like you. It's got some kind of following, followed for weird reasons by dedicated film lovers, maybe lovers of genre films. Right. Maybe just like crazy. Hmm. Totally. But another another film of yours that um, I well I mean certainly over here I don't know I mean obviously it did you know reasonably well everywhere else but it kind of came and went a little bit I remember seeing it at the cinema was The Saint with with Val Kilmer and I've spoken to a few people that have directed Val around this period and he was seems to be going through a, a tumultuous time what was your experience of working with him on, on The Saint well. You know, it was a combination of heaven and hell. Right. <laughs> because there's absolutely no doubt that he is incredibly talented. Right, yeah. No doubt. And he had his ideas about what he wanted the saint to be. Right. We didn't always agree with each other, but he had some fairly convincing ways of getting his own way. Mm. one of those was to say well look we can shoot this scene or we can actually this script the script for this scene can be what you want and what the studio wants or what I want <laughs> but if you make me do what you and the studio want it's going to be terrible because I don't like it <laughs> so, <laughs> So I think the best thing, if you want a great film, is to do it my way. Right. And that was... <laughs> yeah. The right way, the wrong way, and the Bell Kilmer way. Yeah. When I say that's fairly convincing, I, I, I say it's fairly convincing after you've already spent two or three weeks embedding the, the character in the movie, and then suddenly you look this internal rebellion from, from the actor. So... Most uh, days, we would start shooting 7 o'clock, uh, and it start with, um, you know, the reaching of the scene machine that day, and, and, and uh, Val would come to the set with a, with a completely different script. Right. That someone in Los Angeles had written for him overnight. <laughs> and so uh, we'd read the scene, and then uh, we just discussed the scene that he, that he just read, to us and I'd say, well, there's nothing like the script that we meant to be filming. And he would tell me, well, you know, yeah, we can do we can do that script. Don't worry. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do that script, but it'll be terrible. So then I would think, what am I going to do here? I've got, got a studio that wants one film. I've got an actor that's insisting that he can only play his version of that film. And wouldn't work for about three or four hours as discussed it. And then, you know, eventually I'd start filming, usually with about 90% of his script. But once an actor starts to act, they become very vulnerable because they give themselves over to a character. And then they become dependent in that vulnerable penalty on the director. And Bale was no different to any other actor in that sense. 
So what I would have to do is to try and play on that vulnerability and get him to come back to the script that the studio, Paramount Pictures, thought they were financing as much as I possibly could, while at the same time appeasing his need feel as though he was pulling all the shots. Right, right. Um, so <laughs> that's why I say it's heaven or heaven and hell. Yeah. Because there's no doubt that he had great ideas and there's no doubt that uh, he was a great actor. It was just the process. Just haggard. <laughs> just getting to that place was not, not easy. <laughs> wasn't easy, but, you know, but I mean, you know, I mean, in the whole, you know, as they say, it all works out. I don't know how; it's a mystery. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, I enjoyed working with him. Yeah. Although I must say that I enjoyed working with, say, a guy like Michael Caine. Right. Right. More. There, there you have yin and the yang of of film actor. Right. Yeah. Because Michael Caine just wanted to film the script. Yeah. No other script. Not a word of anyone else. Just the script that we all agreed we were shooting. Right. Except because he was still in the English tradition of acting, which is which comes from English theatre, he had total respect for the text and only wanted to work out ways of enriching the text in its translation to the silver screen and only wanted to encourage the director to be as creative and empowered as he possibly could. Because he had worked out in over 104 films that the way to success was, one, shoot the script, and two, make your director strong. Because mm. if the director's weak, the movie won't work. Yeah. So... Now, you know, there you go. Two different approaches, completely different. Yeah. Worlds apart. Yeah, definitely. As I've always been of the opinion, I mean, you should uh, be nice to people on the way up because you might meet them again on the way down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's completely true. But speaking of, of being at the top, I mean, you, you've directed some major, major blockbusters that have, you know, brought in lots of money. And you know, as we were talking about before, with the, the the current trend of of you know that where streaming and and all Netflix and all that's where it's at for original stuff. Do you do you still field offers to direct big movies, or or is it mainly in these new these new uh, media platforms? Well, you know, I still get offers to direct big movies, and uh, hope that I'll spend. Money, like you. <laughs> that is unmaking movies. Yeah. But, you know, in as much as during the 90s, you know, 99% of the offers that came in were to make movies. Now I'd say, you know, 75% of them are to make what we call television or attended movies, to make Filmed at the time that people who shoot devices that are other than just in cinema. Right. So, um, but I think, you know, 
except for a handful of directors, that's probably true to most most of us. Right. You know, and that's simply because there's so much uh, there's suffering an appetite for film entertainment uh, that's not going to be spawned in some way. You talked about it in an interview once that the the writer of Rabbit Proof Friends uh, got in contact with in the middle of the night and got all the times wrong and you know was on at you to to have a look at the script for Rabbit Proof Fence. Uh, she woke me up at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I mean I I killed her. Yeah, I just wanted to get rid of her. I thought she was slamming like she was crazy. A script stalker. <laughs> you, you don't know me. I don't know you, but I know that I've got the perfect script for you and you're the perfect director to make this story. And I couldn't get her off the phone thick enough. I said, look, lady, if somebody tells me this every couple of days, you know, you leave during the daylight. Yeah. <laughs> Can you ring my office, Patch? You know, here's the number. Next morning, I rang the office. That night, I rang the office. Yeah. But listen, this is crazy person. Is stalking me, just get rid of all these things, get it off watcher, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, well, we, I had a, uh, someone answering the phone there at the office and, uh, who was not really, uh, very obedient or else was smarter than I was. Well, they're probably both because she didn't get rid of Christine Olsen. Uh, she was into her own, became friends with her, had a sent her the script. And then had about four people working there in my office and they were passing it around. They'd all read it before I even knew it. You know, I couldn't put the fire out before it became a bushfire. <laughs> it all up. Then I thought, oh my God, now I've got five people that are still. Well, <laughs> 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 eventually I did read it. Not without. A lot of kicking and screaming from me and from the four people that worked for me that just insisted that I look at the script. Right. And when I read it, you know, I fell off my chair because it was not only was it well written, yeah. but also it spoke to me. Yeah. Uh, it touched me deep, deep down. Yeah. Uh, so thank goodness for the crazy lady that rang in the middle of the night. Yeah. Thank goodness that she didn't listen to me. Thank goodness to my employees didn't listen to me, and uh, thank goodness they persevered with my crazy reports. Don't talk to me about that script. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> as a long scruff, as a long-suffering screenwriter, Phil, is so that's not the best way to get a script to you. Then just call your office first, eh? Well, no, 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 no. Since then, all right. That was lightning in a bottle. Since then, now, right. You know, it's usually the opposite. If somebody sends a script through my agent, I, you know, say, oh, geez, I don't want to read this. It's going to be another piece of Hollywood bullshit. Right. But I mean, if some, the best way now to get me to read a script is just probably more inclined to take it seriously if it comes out of the blue in the post from someone with no experience because, you know, as William Goldman says, no, in this business, nobody knows anything. Right, and they don't. <laughs> well, I'll be and sure to uh, I'll be sure to get your uh, your address. <laughs> doesn't doesn't mean you're a soldier. Yeah, just because you've got stripes on your on your arm doesn't mean you know what you're doing. Right, right. 
helped and in experience is the best experience. Well, I'll be sure and get your uh, your address. <laughs> I've got a couple of scripts I'd like you to have a look at. Uh, 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 that's great. But another a, a film that you made uh, not that long ago that I really enjoyed was The Giver. By all accounts, that was a long, a long gestating project. How eventually did you become involved to direct? Well, I became involved because I was uh, had a relationship with the infamous Harvey Weinstein. All right, yeah. Harvey had Harvey had purchased Reddit Defense and the Flight American, which he tried to shelve, but I fought him, and in that fight, which was bitter and brutal. We learned to respect each other, and he did quite well out of both of the films in their own way. And so he he uh, was always on me on to me about directing another film for him. He had this uh, project for years, The Giver, which was a cult novel by Lois Lowry, mm. actually the original YA novel, started the whole the whole uh, trend. The young adult fiction came well before young adult fiction became all the rage of the bookstores and in cinemas. So it was, uh, you know, Harvey who uh, called me over to his hotel, not to go up to his bedroom, but rather to meet him downstairs for breakfast. Uh, and he, he offered me the script. So that's how, that's how I became involved. You're right. Mm. The notorious Harvey Weinstein. Wow, there you go. But uh, no, wonderful movie, and, and J- Jeff Bridges was really the 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 spearhead behind this. He really wanted to do this movie. Yeah, Jeff had opened the book years before and held on to it for a couple of decades. And, uh, you know, eventually it found its moment. Well, Phil, from the wilds of rural Queensland, from a big fan of all your work, I thank you tremendously. I'm very humbled for you to give me this uh, this time this morning or the afternoon where you are in sunny Los Angeles. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Good questions. And, uh, you know, I once uh, went through Warwick. I mean, not Warwick, the person. I'm talking about Warwick, the town. Yeah. Played by rugby against uh, a Catholic school there back in 19. Jeez, what was it? It was 1967. Wow. There you go. There you go. I'll have to. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to alert the local media. <laughs>